Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and take me as you find me deity, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and heaven's regent in the underworld, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Season of Mists, Chapter 6, Issue 27 from the Sandman comic book series. Season of Mists, Chapter 6, was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Kelly Jones, inked by Dick Giordano, colored by Daniel Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by me, Elisa Quitney, covered by Dave McKean. The war between heaven and hell is over. Time to wake up. In Season of Mist, Chapter 6, it is the morning after the banquet, and Cloracan has decided that they're not going to get hell shut down, so he spent his evening enjoying the company of a young man from the Egyptian delegation. Nula, meanwhile, wanders around half-naked, chewing flowers and listening to other people's conversations. Bast and Anubis, a wizard and his faceless companion. Loki, Odin, and a hungover Thor. Everyone wants hell, but no one is too confident that they'll get it. Dream bumps into the angels Remiel and Duma, who say they have a message from God, which Remiel translates as the message comes in, only to discover, horrified, that God has determined that Dream should give the key to hell to Remiel and Duma, who will be banished from the Silver City forever so they can run hell. Remiel is very upset. Duma silently lowers down until his feet touch the ground for the first time. Dream sees God's point and hands the key over to the angels, and the war between heaven and hell ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Dream goes out to tell everyone his decision, and no one's really happy about it, but Azazel is pissed. He promises to consume not as slowly, but Dream says that in the dreaming, all visitors are under the protection of his hospitality, including the ones he didn't know about. He jumps into Azazel's I don't know, I guess you call it a face, and rescues Nada and Karanzin. When Azazel rejects Dream's hospitality and promises to destroy them all anyway, Dream uses his dream powers in the dreaming to stuff Azazel into a glass ball that looks a lot like a Christmas tree ornament and sets the demon aside to think about what he's done. Dream says goodbye to his guests and then tells Matthew to ask Nada to join Dream for dinner that night. They have much to discuss. All right, so Elisa, here we are, Season of Mist, Chapter 6, Sandman Number 27, in which the vexing question of the sovereignty of hell is finally settled to the satisfaction of some, the finer points of hospitality, and in which it is demonstrated that while some may fall, others are pushed. So what did you think of this issue? This issue for me reminds me of the play Pippin. So in 1974, my mom took me to see Pippin and it's like the theater goes dark and then you get these hands coming out of the darkness. They're just these disembodied hands. Mm -hmm. And then you get these um, beautiful, slightly dangerous, fossy dancers and they're singing, we've got magic to do just for you. We've got parts to perform, kings and queens and things and Anyway, that is what this is. This is the Fosse, glorious, intrigue-filled, sexy Fosse production of Sandman. Mm-hmm. And I I just love it. I love that interpretation. I have to say that, like, my daughter's high school 
put on Pippin for the spring musical, and it is the longest three hours of my life. I think part of me is still in that auditorium waiting for it to end. Um, that said, I definitely see what you're saying. There's, <laughs> Wait, you know, I, there is kind of that vibe. I'm so sorry that high school ruined it for you. I saw it with Ben Vereen. You saw, yeah, exactly. That's a whole different experience. But this is something that I think a, a high school in 2018 may not have the cultural context Ooh, to be able to like really yeah. pull that off. But God bless them for trying. It's not always about doing good work. It's about doing the work. If you do the thing, you get the points. Oh, oh I don't know. Wait, um, I just want to say I think that's Satan's work. <laughs> it may well be. I have to say, I loved this issue. The stuff with Remiel and Duma was amazing and heartbreaking and beautiful and such a lovely little twist. Um, Dream using the rules of hospitality to save Nada and Carranza and make Azazel into a Christmas tree ornament, which, by the way, now I want that Christmas tree ornament. So I'm going to have to make it because I don't think it's available anywhere, but I really, really want it. Um, it's just delightful. It's just I, I love, love, love love this issue. But let's go ahead and get started where we always start with Dave McKean's amazing cover art. We have a blurred image of an angel in bright white light surrounded by grungy black darkness. Um, it is such a beautiful cover. And I don't think I can really explain like you have to see what this is to just like get a sense of how incredibly beautiful it is. And I want it in a poster framed on my wall. Hopefully that's for sale somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think we need to do the craft session with the Corrins. In yes. my head, it's always been Chorinson, but I, I don't know. Chorinson? And I can't remember. I should have listened to the Audible version, but I don't know. Ma yeah, maybe it's, I did listen to the Audible version. Maybe it's like but I was Hebrew. focused on Azazel because I always got that one wrong. Maybe it's like Chorinson. Like maybe Hanukkah. it is. I have no idea, but I think that it's it's you know it's the Corinzen in your heart. I don't know why I say Corinzen instead of ch. I have no idea. I will anyway. I think because I think of him as like chronological. I think of it like that, kind oh, of like that Greek. I like that uh, etymology. Maybe. Well, yeah, I, don't know. I as for the cover, since we keep going, mm -hmm. we haven't done this in a little while, so I think we keep going we, off I, into weird. Tangents. I moved cross country. We were gone. I was gone for like two weeks. It's been insane. Now I'm here in Colorado. It's very exciting but yeah I'm a little bit I'm not gonna lie to you guys I'm a little bit off my game well as as we I don't know if that will make the final cut but I have to repeat <laughs> anyone who's listening try and say season of mists chapter six <laughs> it is not easy <laughs> so anyway uh to the Dave McKean cover I I was thinking that the the cover reminds me of an x-ray or even a negative of the image mm -hmm. of an angel and there's this part that's scratched and blurred and no longer perfect and that seems mm -hmm. so apropos for this issue oh god it absolutely is um all right so tell me some of your thoughts you got a lot of stuff here in the notes i am really excited to hear your thoughts on this issue which again i'm at one of these places where i'm like well this is my favorite one so far i say that almost every week <laughs> fussy um fussy. so I, I also, I mean, I love this issue. One of the mm -hmm. things that I am noticing coming back to it is things half heard and things unspoken. Mm -hmm. You know, as we, we start with following uh, Nula through the Dream King's palace, and we catch these snippets of half heard conversation and then these pointed silences, silences as, as the mm -hmm. people, like the faceless guy, whoever he mm -hmm. is, and, and, and the whoever wizard guy observe Nula and realize that she's she's within earshot. 
And it's mm-hmm. just such great grounded storytelling. And it's it's also an interesting choice to me because back in the Dead Boys uh, story, it was such a personal story, that story. But there were moments when we could see things that the boys themselves were not privy to, like the, the ghosts mm-hmm. coming in from the outside. Um and I realize I'm talking with my hands. I've just sort of clapped my hands. I am I'm, I'm also out of practice. I'm going to put my hands in my lap. Um, so here, this is this grand story of politics and intrigue. And we're looking from the eyes of this minor pawn. You know, that's what mm-hmm. she is. She's just a, a very, she's a mm. gift. She's, And, you know, her brother gets to at least go and have fun, naughty sex. And she's mm-hmm. just been asleep and eating flowers. Yeah. So that's um that's a really interesting choice. I think the technique of having the lettering deliberately illegible in places, it's brilliant. Yeah. I mm-hmm. I don't know if it was done before. I know Josh Unruh. Unruh I I'm always yeah, bad. Unruh, He's yes. the Chorinson of my friends. I never Right. Knew. Um but <laughs> Anyway, I, I'm sure it's been used somewhere before in comics, and he knows where. I guess everything's been done, but I can't remember this technique being used much before or after. Mm-hmm. People are probably going to prove me wrong. But mm-hmm. I think a nice point for me here is how Neil trusts the silences and letting the art carry the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've often given workshops where I'm trying to teach prose writers how to mm-hmm. how to write for comics and the initial urge is how can i cram as many words yes. as possible into this panel and it's you know it's i i always liken it i'm sure i've said this before like to to being the 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 guy in a ballroom dancing couple where you mm-hmm. have to have this amazing level of ability as the writer but everyone's going to be looking at the artist who is the Ginger Rogers of the duo. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And I think that that is it's one of those things that I think is difficult for writers in any genre that we really want to write the hell out of everything and just like, you know, c- control for every detail. But if you know that your Ginger Rogers is going to be there to like take your movement and turn it into something backwards and in high heels, you know, um, and you can actually do that collaboration. I think that that is something that is required of writers who are working in visual media, like, you know, comic books and television and movies. You have to release control to a, a certain amount and trust the artists that you're working with for them to like get your vision and be able to expand upon it and add those little nuances. I mean, I loved that about how some of the um, some of the words were, you know, you could see little bits of them and maybe forget, which, you know, if you've ever eavesdropped and there's some stuff that you can't hear, you know, not that I'm a big eavesdropper, but, you know, there's some things that you can't make out or whatever. Um, it, it is that is a really nice visual representation of that experience. And I thought that that was really a very cool, especially because like in where she's listening to the Egyptian, you know, gods, Anubis and Bass. And so the letters are formed in this very kind of like Egyptian looking, you know, typography letter work. Um, And it's just it's so beautiful how even the stuff that we can't read still gives that that hint of that aesthetic, um, which is just an added extra layer of, you know, very, very cool, visually cool in this space. Absolutely. And Todd Klein, you know, I think is such a brilliant letterer, makes you aware of what... 
can be done with lettering, that font is is not just a throwaway thing. Uh, it's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's so thinking about words, I had a related, these were sort of related points to me because I realized with this, Neil talks in the script about the pacing and the issues mm -hmm. with pacing. He keeps saying like, oh, God, I thought I was going to be here by now, but I'm only here. And then, you mm -hmm. know, you've got this huge, wonderful double page spread, um, which is when we, we get into the, the throne room, I guess, and it's this gorgeous mm -hmm. architectural, you know, ceiling. It's, it's, it feels like you're in some vast palace and you've got all the gods assembled. Well... You know, there's almost, I think there may be no captions or it's just the credits in mm -hmm. there. And yeah. I was realizing that pacing to me might be the greatest challenge in comic book writing. I was talking about this with uh, Morissette, with Alain, my, mm -hmm. my uh, collaborator on Guilt. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was talking about the fact that you, you know, pacing wise, when you have a lot of panels, it feels like time is passing passing more rapidly it quickens the mm -hmm. the pace and if you have panels that are more or less the same size you get that feeling of one beat following another whereas yeah. when you get a big splash page or you have a double page spread it's this ah you have this moment mm -hmm. with air and space and grandeur and you've slowed the time down but you know it is a sad sad ironic thing that you know so you want to have more talkiness in smaller panels and space mm -hmm. in the larger panels and I know as an assistant editor whose job it was to letter these things that you were often thinking mm -hmm. if only I could take this word balloon and put it onto that page where there were almost no mm -hmm. words but mm -hmm. and a lot of space but that would impact the pacing so it's it's yeah I mean every kind of writing, whether it's a novel or a play or or a TV script, I guess everything has its own particular challenge. I think mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking right now that maybe pacing is the comic book writer's greatest challenge. <laughs> it definitely pacing, I think, is a really big challenge for um, for any kind of extended, like, you know, your flash fiction, your short stories. I think you can probably get the pacing down there. Um, but the, the bigger story is the more you're accomplishing within the, the frame of that story, like the more you have to think about pacing. And when you're thinking about in terms of comic books or like TV shows, right, movies and books, if you go a little long or whatever, like especially books, like they'll let you go, you know, 20,000 more words is no big deal for the most part but that's a lot of story in 20,000 words whereas you know a minute more in a movie or in a TV show is absolutely especially in the days where we had very strict you know time and it had to be exactly 22 minutes and all this stuff that could be a problem uh, you know in, in comic books I mean correct me if I'm wrong but like you had a certain number of pages and that was generally it were you able to go over it all or was that a was, what kind of a consideration was that Um, I I don't think with DC, I don't think it was a very rare thing where we got, you know, a double pay. You know, it was usually mm -hmm. a planned thing if we knew something was going to be bigger, not like Ahoy Comics, where a couple of times I've gone to Tom Pyre, my editor, and said, could I just mm -hmm. have one more page? And <laughs> um, and Alan has been really good. He's like, if there's a budget problem, like they don't even need to pay me. But of course, it always... Oh, how sweet. No, he's incredible. But the the... 
issue with this is that, of course, there are publishing costs every time you do an extra page. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's complicated, but they've been they've been kind. There are also fewer pages now. Uh, 24 pages was standard and then mm-hmm. it became 22 and mm-hmm. 20 is often the standard now. So if you think when you're reading comics today that there seem to be fewer pages of, of story, you're right. There are. Wow. Yeah. You know, sometimes that stuff tightens up. Um, all right. So can you tell everybody again what Guilt is? Oh, so Guilt is um, the comic I've just written. Guilt, G-I-L-T, stands for the Guild of Independent Lady Temporalists. And mm-hmm. it's a uh, time travel story about uh, two sexy women, one in her 70s, one in her 40s, <laughs> who time travel back to their younger days in the 70s, the 1970s. I love it. So how do people get a hold of that? When is it available and how do they get it? It's uh, available April 6th. And if you have a local comic book store and you ask them, please, please, I must have my Ahoy Comics guilt, then they will procure it for you forthwith. Awesome. All right. Call your local comic book store and get a hold of that. And I actually believe that I have a link to uh, independent comic book store like directory uh, in the show notes. It should be in the show notes. I've added it in in this automated feature that I, I hope will be working. And if it's not, let me know and I'll look it up for you. But definitely uh, get a hold of your local comic book store and ask for guilt by Elisa Quitney. All right. So, um, you know, as you're talking about pacing, I'm thinking about where in the story we have this incredible twist. And the thing is, is that the twist as it happens, which is, you know, Dream is still trying to figure out who he's going to give hell to. Uh, Remiel, who has no interest in any of this, he's just there as an observer, is like, yeah, well, God has a message for you. And he sits and he's like a telegram just taking the message down, right? And so he is understanding what is happening as he's delivering the message to uh, dream which by the way would be something that i think i cannot wait to see how this shows up in the tv show but in a comic book to get all of that across to get those facial expressions as he is not just delivering the message but realizing what is in the message you know and objecting to it while at the same time you know doing his duty and and all of this It's so incredibly beautiful. Um, And one of the things like people who, you know, have have taken my classes and, you know, listen to me talk about writing will often hear me bemoan the twist. Right. Because I think that and I, I directly blame M. Night Shyamalan for this, because The Sixth Sense had a really great twist that was really well executed. And the thing is that it takes a lot of skill to do a really well executed twist. But a lot of writers were like, oh, now I must have a twist in everything. And so they're always looking to put in the surprise. And what happens with a lot of writers is that in order to hold up a twist, you know, which, ha ha, you did not see this coming, you know, um, often what happens is that they, they end up putting up like a whole bunch of scaffolding, what I call scaffolding, which is which are things in the story that exist solely to hold up the twist, right? They're just holding that up so that you can do that work and, and everything. And they don't do anything else narratively, you know, so you, it, depending on how much of your narrative real estate you are spending on scaffolding, that can get more and more onerous as you tell the story. And a lot of times I will see all of this scaffolding there, wasting my time for a twist that is not that interesting and not that, you know, not that narratively, like, you know, constructed. It's simply there to be a twist. The narrative doesn't necessarily need it. 
in this instance here we have like and the fairly early parts of this story we have this beautiful twist moment where Remiel and Duma are, you know, delivering the message. They realize what's going on. Duma, of course, is completely silent. And all we see, and I'll talk about this when I come to my favorite panel, is him slowly lowering down. The, the, the feet have never touched base clay, right? Slowly lowering down until his feet touch the ground um, while Remiel is, is, you know, really suffering with this decision that hell needs to go to them. The demons need to go back. The damned need to go back and everything needs to be as it was because hell is a reflection of heaven and heaven doesn't have any meaning if hell does not exist. You know, this whole thing. And then what I love, too, is that Dream is sitting there listening, watching this whole thing. And then he's like, yeah, can't argue with that. Here's the key. You know, um, it's such a beautiful moment. And I really love it. And the thing is, like, the difference between the scaffolding, you know, and an actual, you know, like organic twist that's built into the narrative is that we've had... Remiel and Duma here the whole time just observing, right? So we have always seen them there. It's not like they all of a sudden drop down in the middle of it and say, hell is ours and snatch the key and change the whole direction of the narrative. And like, you know, didn't see that coming, did you? You know, what's beautiful is that if you can have the twist there in full view of everybody, but you're doing a narrative sleight of hand, you know, so that we're so concerned with the fact that Azazel has nada and how is Dream going to make this decision? And yes, these angels are here, but so is like a million other people. And, you know, the angels are the only one, you know, without a dog in the fight that are just there to take a look. Like all of that is so beautifully set up and then to turn it around and have it be the only right decision to be made um, where there's been all of this. It's just so beautifully constructed. And so this is one of those instances where I'm like, I don't have a thing against twists. I have a thing against the, the compulsory twist that people feel they need to put in their stories, which they do not. Um, and then all the scaffolding that you put up to try to maintain it when the story itself is suffering for that scaffolding. Here, we don't have any scaffolding. It's just beautifully constructed. And there is this moment of breath. And it is early in the story. Like usually you see these big moments coming toward the end, you know, this is it's an odd construction. It's an odd structure, but it absolutely really works because here we've had all of this build up, all of these people fighting for this one thing. And then we all of a sudden have all of the wind taken out of every single sail, including the ones who get hell and don't want it, you know? Um, and then we have to kind of like have that whole breath release because we need to know what the hell is going to happen to Nada. You know, like we're we're in this now. The goal that has been dreams from the beginning of this story was to get Nada out of hell and was to rescue her. And so then he's able to go and deal with Corazon and dive into Corazon's little tooth eye face thing void. I I don't really know exactly what to call. I'm so Azazel. Did I say Corazon? I meant Azazel. Um so he dives into Azazel, saves uh, Corinzen and and Nada, pulls them out, does this whole hospitality thing. Reality is as he wishes it in the dreaming. Like, it's all of this stuff. And so we end up like the story in the beginning was the goal was for him to save Nada. Now he's finally able to do that. So that is the appropriate point. That is where the climax belongs. And the twist is not part of the climax. It's just it's such an odd unusual construction but I think it works beautifully 
Yeah, it it absolutely does. And it's it's funny, as you were talking, I was realizing it's a deus ex machina. That doesn't feel like a deus ex machina. <laughs> it's, it's, well, see, here's the thing, like, all of the, you know, standard tropes that we kind of make fun of, a trope in and of itself is not a bad thing. You know, a trope is a trope for a reason. The same way a cliche is a cliche for a reason. Like, you know, those are things that we come back to. It's just that if you can use it in a way that has like real narrative juice in it, you know, that like makes sense for the narrative and feeds what the story means and what it's about, because a story is a meaning delivery system. That's essentially what it is. We're there for the meaning. All sorts of fun, you know, flashy hands waving and jazz hands can happen. And that's great. But we're there for the meaning. So if everything that you do with your various tropes that you apply are feeding that meaning, you're in good shape. You can do it. And I think that the literal deus ex machina here um, is actually like warranted and works and is part is part of the meaning of the story. It contributes to the deep meaning involved in this fight for hell. Um, So I, you know, I say fair play. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Well, it's it's interesting because we're talking a bit about the writing techniques. And mm-hmm. I I was thinking about the objects in the trunk. So there's that mm-hmm. great moment where Morpheus, you know, has has captured Azazel, that that Azazel being the the, the darkness with the teeth. And yes. um, and he's got it in the globe and he puts it in a trunk. And Mm -hmm. there are some other objects in the trunk. Um, I have to look at the art again. In the script, it is specified. We've got Mm -hmm. a small, squarish, leather-bound box locked. There's a ring, a coin, and an old-fashioned pocket watch as well. And Mm -hmm. I cannot remember if uh, we got those stories later in Sandman or not. Um, Mm -hmm. But the decision to show these objects was obviously deliberate as were the un- that unheard or half-heard conversation. And, mm-hmm. and what it does is it gives us this impression of a vast universe of stories uh, mm-hmm. that we, we, you know, glimpsed a little portion of, but, but we don't have the whole of it. And so I had this memory that came back to me. I was remembering saying something about loving this technique in The Sandman. Mm-hmm. And Paul Levitz, who was then vice president of DC Comics, but also uh, an editor and a writer uh, himself said, oh, yeah, that's the Zelazny technique. Now, (laughs) I know of the science fiction writer Roger Zelazny, but I Mm -hmm. wasn't aware of a thing called the Zelazny technique. And so uh, Paul Levitz explained it to me. And in order to sort of bring it to everybody, I, mm-hmm. I thought I would I do a little digging and I found this on some Reddit thing. If this is accurate or not, I don't know. But I think this is a, a bit of uh-huh. a Zelazny interview. And uh, if I'm wrong, um, great hive mind, tell me. So, <laughs> uh, so Zelazny said that Hemingway had a theory that you could omit anything. And if the omitted part strengthened the story then it actually made people feel like the story was more than the sum of its parts, something more Mm -hmm, than they understood. mm -hmm. So Zelazny took this and kind of made it his own. And he decided that if it added something to the story as a whole, 
he would take a stock character and add a few extra sentences that showed that this character had an existence beyond his or her or their walk-on role. It's kind of like Mm -hmm. what they tell an actor to do. So even if you're just walking on stage, you're supposed to have in your mind where your character has just come from and where they're going to. It's not just you're wandering off the stage. Mm -hmm. So the Zelazny corollary of the Hemingway principle is an indication of the presence of things that aren't essential to the story, but give you a sense of a character's backstory. So Mm -hmm. uh, he talks about Let's see, the, you know, he'll he'll often write all this stuff out to figure out what a character's past is. And mm-hmm. and then he'll allude to it, but he won't really explore it on the page and he won't give the whole story. <laughs> it's what uh, Joss Whedon did when he mentioned in the Avengers, you know, Budapest. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that was all squandered. But I you remember how excited <laughs> we all were. We're like, oh, my God, what happened in Budapest? Um <laughs> So uh, I'm just trying to see if there was anything else in this quote that I should say that, you know, it's it's the idea that you want people to feel something more than they understand about the story and giving these little tidbits of parts of the story that you haven't all explored. So these objects in the trunk, to bring it back around, are part of Morpheus's backstory. He had mm-hmm. a past before the the Sandman comic began. He's endless mm-hmm. after all. And here yeah. is tactile proof that that there was a past. And these mm-hmm. are stories that we don't know. We know about the Corinthian. We don't know about all these mm-hmm. other objects. Maybe we will and maybe we won't. And I think it's just, again, there are techniques and, and things here which I think writers can absolutely come away with and, and, and use. I don't know mm-hmm. if Neil was aware of this as a Zelazny technique. He's He was a wide reader. He may have gotten it from some other place. Um, mm-hmm. But it's anyway, so I'm just calling calling attention to that because it's cool. Well, I really like I wasn't aware of it as a Zelazny technique, but I've I've thought about that, you know, and, and have employed it some in my own writing and have seen it in a lot of places. Um, but what I really like about it is that it really does kind of seed a world, you know, that there's something beyond the four walls. I remember when um, when I was doing uh, the Outlander, uh, I was doing podcast about Outlander, Sex and Whiskey, and I would talk about how whenever Diana Gabaldon Right, wrote, you felt like the four walls were there, like you could lean against it. You felt like the whole world was out there and put together because of the way that she wrote. And there was so much, you know, that you like, you felt like she knew everything in that world, even though not all of it was actually on the page. You felt very confident that if she said a wall was somewhere, it was always going to be in that place, you know. Um, And I think that there is something about knowing your world so well that you feel confident enough to drop a detail without feeling the need to tell that whole story. And maybe it'll come up later and you can pull that thread in and weave it into the story if you decide you want to, or you can just leave it there, you know? Um, But it is one of those things. It is a technique that I think is, um, is really valuable in filling out uh, the world beyond the edges of just the space that you're telling your story in, that there's more stuff going on. And I love the fact that Neil was so specific about these items, 
Like he knew what those were, whether or not they ever showed up. And that's kind of the value of writing, um, doing what I call discovery writing, which is where you as an author, you sit down and you just write stuff that's never going to be in the story or that you have no intention of being in the story, but it fills the world out for you. You should know more about your world than you're actually putting on the page. You know, I used to compare it to an iceberg where 10% is up top and 90% is below. And you need to know that 90% is a writer, but the the reader only needs that top 10%, you know? Absolutely. And I was just thinking that maybe the opposite of that kind of writing is when Mm -hmm. characters are constantly thinking and reflecting back on something traumatic that happened in their past that finally gets fully revealed. So it's like, Mm ah, you know, don't don't let's talk about, I don't know, what happened Mm -hmm. in you know, Cincinnati, that was terrible. Cincinnati, when I was seven, (laughs) Cincinnati, and then finally, you get like the terrible story of Mm -hmm. how they lost their velveteen rabbit. And that was traumatic. And, you know, and, and you feel like, okay, now I know what makes you tick. It was the loss of your stuffed rabbit. Mm -hmm. It's it's it can be it can feel a little reductive. Yeah, yeah, definitely it can. Um, But I think that also there's some amount of leaning in that happens, which is something that as a writer, you really want to do with your readers is drop a little something and they lean into it. Um, One of the things when I was uh, teaching television production is I would show the opening scene to the social network that by uh, that David Fincher had as written by Aaron Sorkin, David Fincher directed it. In the opening scene, we have the scene where Mark Zuckerberg is talking with a woman that he's dating. And as they're having the conversation, they're in a bar and you can barely hear them like you can barely just barely hear the amazing Sorkin dialogue like and the thing is that Fincher is holding the Sorkin dialogue behind this veil of noise you know the ambient sound right of the bar and as a viewer you need to lean in like nobody's eating their popcorn at that time nobody's having a conversation with the person next to them they're leaning in to hear it and you become as a viewer it's a technique that makes you more involved like when we can't see something we're we're filling it out in our own brain and there's just more you know engagement on the part of the reader and again watching anything i always call it reading because if you're engaging critically with a piece of narrative you are reading it regardless of whether it's tv movie or book or whatever um, Um, So, yeah, so I think that you get it's like one of those techniques that allows you to get the reader to lean in a little bit because they're like, "Ooh, what is that? There's the skull of the Corinthian. That was really neat. But what's the coin about? What is the? This is all significant, you know, and when you're trying to look at, you know, um, the page of a comic book. And again, that's part of what that art that you were talking about earlier. That's leaning in like, you know, we're we're leaning into those visuals and reading those visuals as well as we are the text itself. And so I think that. Neil is showing um, like a, a really um, very um, elegant understanding of how that works here. And and I do remember him saying to me explicitly back, you know, in those days that mm-hmm. the more intelligent you assume the reader is at connecting mm-hmm. the dots, the more intelligent the reader will assume you the writer are. I think, yeah, absolutely. There's that. And also that like, it, you know, your reader will like your reader is smarter 
than you think like the average like you look at the average person we always have this idea of the like lowest common denominator as far as like you know who we write our media for and that kind of thing and I think that that generally your audience is at least I know that my audience is at least as smart as I am if not smarter and so I got to keep up with them and I think when you know how smart your audience is and you play to how smart they are that becomes a delightful back and forth with you and your audience and people who think their audience is stupid are not going to be I think as engaging to read you know so I mean thinking knowing that your audience is smart I think is the first like honestly probably one of the most valuable steps into being a really excellent writer um but I have to say like going back to Azazel um I I, I have to just shine a light on this one moment where we have a demon who is brought down by the rules of hospitality. And I just want to spend a moment with that because, oh my God, I, I could not love anything more than politeness and propriety being something that brings down a demon. That is beautiful, you know? Um, and Azazel's ripping time and space, all teeth and eyes design is so beautiful and creepy and tardisy. It's bigger on the inside, you know? I love it so much. And I just, I don't know how I can ever make that Christmas ornament because I'm not artsy. I'm mildly craftsy, but I'm not artsy. But I just want to make an Azazel Christmas ornament and have that forever because I absolutely love that he puts him inside this. And I mean, let's not forget, like Dream, when he was captured, was in something that had that Christmas ornament, you know, bowl like kind of thing, you know, like a bulbous glass encasement you know it's a little similar to kind of like where he was it really makes you want to write a story about like a sinister christmas ornament i know how fun would that be oh my god we should write a whole book of short stories that are just inspired by these little elements like it wouldn't actually be as we wouldn't be doing any like you know intellectual property infringement but like can you imagine an evil a uh, Christmas tree ornament, Christmas story, like a real Christmas story with an evil Christmas tree ornament. Now I want to write that. And there's a whole Victorian tradition, of course, of Christmas ghost stories. <laughs> I, I also just go. wanted to mention that in the script, Neil talks about being a little uncertain about that twist. He said, mm-hmm. you know, well, I'm worried that it, it, it's a little too good versus evil. And it's also a bit like the punchline of Sandman 7. And mm-hmm. then he says... You know, what I think is great, what the hell, it's where the story goes, and it's where we have to follow. And I think trusting the story, doing what's right for the story is, again, just good, good Neil advice, even though it was to himself there. (laughs) Right. But he found it, though. Like, he wrote his way to it. And sometimes you have to just realize that the story is going to go where the story is going to go. And as a writer, you get that feeling. It's like a puzzle piece clicking into place and you know it's right. And you may have your doubts about it, but that's where this story is going. And you just kind of kind of ride that horse out of the barn. You know, Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate that. I love that Neil writes his way through these things in the actual script itself and just left it in there, like just left it in there for people. I love that. You know, I forgot to say this, but Neil also, you know, he'll just start the script saying things like, you know, I'm not feeling well or I'm recovered now. I don't have the flu anymore. And he allows (laughs) himself to just 
be wherever he is and to start by putting words on the page. And then he left it in the oh, same way we leave really our little, good. you know, weird glitches in, in the podcast. Just a little thumbprint. Yeah. on there. But also what I like about that and what I think may and again I know nothing about anything. I don't know Neil, I don't know any I didn't work on any of this. But like it starts this as a conversation with somebody, which is a collaborative, you know, thing. Yes. Like it you know, it it creates it puts Neil in this script as a person who is connecting with other people who are half a world away, yeah. you know, working on this, you know, via fax machine or whatever it was y'all were doing there in the 90s. Um, and so the idea that, that he created this script in a way that could be a collaborative conversation as much as it is a story, you know, um, I, I like that. It shows the acknowledgement and understanding of other humans there on the receiving end working with you. And I would love, uh, do you have these, Was were these published in a, in a book or are these like copies that you had lying around from back then? Or I, I ha used to have them. Um, but yeah. misplaced all of them. No, Neil sent me some again because he was like, oh, you might find wonderful. this useful. But I love um, it. Yeah. I love so that insight. I'll have to share some of them with you because I think you would like that. Oh, God, no, I would absolutely love it. And thank you, Neil, for sending them. Um, one of the other things that uh, I wanted to kind of like hit on, once again, we're coming back to this place where dream at the end of everything shows empathy. And, you know, and plays in this really compassionate space because here we have Korenzen or Chornzen or whatever he is. Korenzen. Um, there you go. Who <laughs> battled, you know, this is the dude who battled for uh, the helm, you know, early on um, and has never been kind to Dream, has never, is a demon. I mean, if he was kind, it'd be weird, you know. Um, but here we are at the end. Dream rescues him. Dream could have just rescued Nada and left Corinzen in there, you know. But he didn't. He pulled him out, you know, and rescued him anyway. And it's just an element to, and it, it always happens in these quiet little aside moments um, where Dream, like, we've got this whole big thing. It's all about Nada. And then we take a moment for him to be saving Corinzen as well. Like, um, you know, like letting Rachel have a nice dream, you know, with uh, that issue with Constantine where he's getting the sand and, um, you know, like we always come back to this. It's such a frequent note that I find it so interesting that like one of the themes and it's such a quiet theme that runs like a kind of like a golden thread in a tapestry and keeps repeating and coming up is this compassion, is this empathy, you know, is this like moment of, of unnecessary and often unasked for kindness that dream just does anyway, and then moves on and doesn't want a cookie for being a great guy. Doesn't, we don't make a big deal out of it. Um, and there's something about that that I find to be uh, such you know, in times where we are looking for a connection to humanity, you know, and here we have this anthropomorphization of a concept, you know, who is reconnecting us with that part of our humanity. And I think that sometimes one of the things that gets lost is that empathy, is that compassion, is that unasked for moment of consideration. And we have that with dream all the time, like constantly. I think I think you're right. And yet, as I reflect on this, sometimes I think he, he is, Morpheus is doing something out of compassion. 
sometimes I think he is doing his duty. He has this yeah. really sharp sense of responsibility. So when mm -hmm. he um, he grants the the Constantine's request to help Rachel as an afterthought, mm -hmm. it didn't occur to him. In this right. case, I'm not. I don't mean to to take away from his growth, but it's still he is. He promised you know, safety and protection mm -hmm. to everyone. And so he's right. also doing his duty there by oh, Torrenson. Yeah. So I Because he's under his protection, even the people yes, that he didn't even know those about. so I think for him very often duty and responsibility come before huh. his own emotions. Interesting. So is it duty or is it empathy? Everybody out there, make the arguments. We'll see you on Twitter. Um, all right. So let's move into Lucien's library, which are behind the scenes. There may be some spoilers here for anybody who is spoiler sensitive and hasn't already read the entirety of Sandman. I don't know who you are, but if you're here, welcome. We love you. And we're just giving you a warning that uh, that there be might be some spoilers in this section. So what do you have for us this week, Elisa? Well, first of all, from the scripts, it seems that mm -hmm. Neil... Uh, would you know, as I said, would just be writing about whatever he was doing. Uh, often it seemed like there was something on TV in the background. I don't think, I mean, in the time I've known him, because I was with him when he was writing mm -hmm. uh, most, if not all, of the Norse mythology book, sometimes there would be music going, but mm -hmm. really not, uh, not a TV or anything. But in those days, uh, there was a TV, and he he said there was a a, a Belgian uh, vampire film called Daughters of Darkness, and uh, it's it's a 1971 Belgian film. Neil calls it possibly the most uh, perverse vampire movie ever. I watched a trailer, mm -hmm. and now I'm kind of wanting to. To take a look at it, although it seems yeah. uh, pretty scary, although there's a, a snazzy silver sequin dress that is so 70s. It's like a cross <laughs> between The Hunger and like The Sunny and Cher show just from the trailer. Mm -hmm. I, I'm here for it. I love it. That sounds awesome. Um, so other little things. Um, Morpheus changes. So we see in that scene where he's rescuing Nada... First, he is the Sandman mm -hmm. we're more used to seeing, who's sort of very white. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we see him morph into being uh, the African Morpheus that would be seen from Nada's POV. I don't think I saw that in the script, unless I'm wrong, mm -hmm. or maybe that was added after. But uh, if that was Kelly Jones's initi initiative, then that was great collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just a scene, page 20, panel four, where there's this beautiful, soulful shot of Morpheus. And and in the script, it just says, just do this as a beautiful facial study of the character, Kelly. Maybe pull mm -hmm. out your charcoal or washes for this one small panel. He's looking slightly down and his eyes are in darkness. He looks very thin and vulnerable. But you also realize that this is simply not someone you mess with. <laughs> And I just thought that was wonderful. And then, yeah. you know, the whole pullback. So it's just sort of nice to see that this was an invitation to the artist, to Kelly Jones in this case, to be mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. My last little Lucien's library <laughs> is called Nidog Corpsucker. And mm -hmm. uh, in the scene where Thor says, you know, under his breath, 
something. He says Nidog Corp Sucker. And I just looked it up. I, I remembered, and I'm probably saying it wrong. Is it Nidog? It should be Nidog, I maybe? I have no idea. Somebody out there knows. Nidog or Nidog is a dragon uh, that, that is gnawing at the root of the world tree. But there's a thought that the etymology, uh, that it might be, uh, you know, a, a really... You know, Nith was a term for a social stigma, implying the loss mm-hmm. of honor and the status of a villain. So mm. anyway, Nithog, corpse sucker, I'm, I want to bring it into more common parlance because I think... I think we should absolutely yeah. start. We should we should make fetch a thing is what I'm saying. So <laughs> let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> All right, Elisa. So what is your favorite page in this issue? Oh, gosh, I think um, Morpheus telling us that the key corrupts and then Matthew the Raven looking out at us with a really fantastic uh, frontal (laughs) raven face and saying, well, it's a good thing it went to those angels then, you know, as in they couldn't possibly be corrupted. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really interested to kind of see uh, where that ends up going. Um, I have to say for me, it's the page where Remiel in in real time is both delivering and processing God's command. Um, And Duma just silently in the background in the upper corner of the panel. God, I love how this was done. You see him slowly lowering down, you know, um, and then his feet just touch the ground and that's it. And that's the moment where you know that like, this is it. And his face is covered in tears. You know, he's watching Remiel suffer. Um, and you just get the sense that Duma is a badass. And I really love that. And, and it's both literal and figurative. It's like yeah. the two things at once. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So what's your favorite part of the story? Oh, gosh. I love Nula wandering through the castle and half overhearing mm-hmm. intrigues as she goes. But I have a second runner up because mm-hmm. when I first read Thor's awful joke, <laughs> you're Thor, I'm so Thor, I could hardly piss. That was stuck in my head in the night for weeks, weeks. And of course, Nidog Corpse Sucker. Yes, which is a very, very good curse. Um, for me, I have to say, like when um, when Remiel, it's the same, my favorite part, my favorite page are the same thing. That twist, Remiel's so devastated. Duma's just accepting, you know, of this fate. Um, Remiel is struggling and Duma still doesn't speak. You know, like he's he's made a, a, a commitment, an oath, you know, of silence, um, a vow of silence, and he's not going to break it um, under any circumstances, even being condemned to running hell, you know. Um, and so, like, you know, that the one person who wasn't vying for hell, who didn't want it, got it, makes so much sense. It's wonderful. It was right in front of our faces the whole time. And here it is. You know, I think it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's there are a lot of jobs where the only person who would be anywhere, you know, near capable of doing it is the person who doesn't actively want it. Yeah, I can think of a few where that would be really, really good. <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation, I would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. 
Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers... I thank you all for coming here, and I trust that, although you may be disappointed by my decision, you will understand it. To find out how you, too, can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or invoke the wrath of chaos from the Shivering Brigade to the Laughing Dancers. Whatever. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack? Thank you for having me at your party, Mr. Dreamy. I had a lovely time. We'll be back next time with Season of Miss Epilogue, issue number 28 of the Sandman series. Until then, reality here conforms to my wishes. It is what I wish it to be. No more. No less. <laughs> <laughs>